This week on Into the Archives with the Boone Podcast, I sit down with a gentleman that hit over 600 homers. He's one of the favorite guys in the game amongst his peers, teammates, opponents, whoever. You'll never hear a bad word uttered about this guy. Hall of Famer, Jim Tomey. Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Jimmy, great to have you, man. And, Booney, and, uh, you, I appreciate yeah, Booney, you doing this. Thanks for having me. Uh, hope everything's great. We actually already have our outdoor Christmas lights up as well, so you're not alone. Yeah, I just, you know, and the and the boys, too. <laughs> the boys are the ones that want it. Like, Dad, uh, yeah, we got to I'm finding Christmas decorations that, that I didn't know I had. But, uh, no, it's it's fun. It's fun. So, yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. like I said, I appreciate you coming on. This is uh, Jimmy yep. Tomey is a great guest. Great guest. I'm looking forward to it. And let me set the stage out of the block. Okay. It's 2003. Right. Uh, we're at Veterans Stadium. We got a rain delay. And under the bleachers where, where the clubhouses are, a couple of the Phillies came over to, at the time I was with the Seattle Mariners and a couple of the Phillies came over and, and we were just kind of actually shooting the shit uh, during a rain delay. And here comes Jim Tomey. And I want to tell this story, Jim. It's, it's awesome. It's one of my favorites to date. <laughs> and here comes Jimmy, you know, bigger than life with that smile on his face and booty. And I said, Hey, what's up, Jimmy? And he goes, Hey, I just want to tell you, and this is my best Jim Tomey voice. I just want to tell you, I saw you hit your 200th homer. Congratulations, man. He goes, it reminds me of when I hit my 400th and I started cracking up. You got to know to the audience out there, you got to know Jimmy to know he was being as genuine as he could. And he was more talking about the trajectory or, or where he hit it. But uh, yeah. it's one of my favorite stories, and it's hilarious. <laughs> and that's how we're going to open it up. But good to have you on, and uh, that was awesome. Well, I, I, appre- I appreciate it, as you know. And I think, I think the one thing, and I've talked to Sean Casey a lot about this, is when you play first base and you admire players, okay, you watch, you know, we not, okay, you're in, you're in the game, A guy gets a double, a guy gets a base hit. You have the connection of whether a a manager goes to the mouth. So there's the downtime of chatting. And, you know, I have to say, Booney, I always admired the way you played. You played the game the right way. There's, There's no doubt you were taught how to play the game from your dad, you know, which I think carried on over to Aaron as well. And it it was always, I, I have to say, I always rooted for you when we weren't playing you because I knew when we were playing you, you were going to do something special. And, uh, you know, as you know, baseball is a fraternity. And when we're not competing against each other, I think we have this special brotherhood that all of us kind of know what each guy's going through. So, you know, I learned that a long time ago is, hey, you know, be friendly, but also when you're competing against that other team, it's time to it's time to be serious as well. Yeah, and I was telling I was telling uh, you know a friend of mine. I said, you know, I'm looking forward to it. I got I got Jimmy Tomey coming on the show, and hey, what's he like? I said, you know, I've never played with him. I, I me and him have had several interactions. I said, but he's one of those guys. That you never played with him, you've never spent a ton of time with him, you've never gone on vacation with him, but you feel like we've been buddies for a hundred years. And and I think that's <laughs> something that you brought to the table. That that's not something that that's taught. Or you you're just that yeah. guy. It's it's something you were born with. And it's cool because I, I think I'm not the only one that has that feeling. You know, you just make people feel like Hey, we're best friends and we've, and we've been doing it for a hundred years, but it, it's a really cool thing. And I, I wanted to give that to you since we're giving compliments coming out of the shoot. Cause Thank not too you. many people have that. I, I think that's just something you were born with and it's a real cool time. And 
I, I want to go back. We played against, well, we didn't play against each other, but this is back in, in I think it was AAA. And I was in the, yeah. in the Pacific Coast League, and you were in one of the other leagues. But back then, we all got together, and there was an all-star team picked. And we all kind of, I, I forget how we picked them, but I remember seeing you at the all-star game. And I think that year you're hitting 340 or 350. And, and everybody was talking about how good of a hitter you were. And I'm thinking, you know, home runs. I don't know how many home runs you hit in the minor leagues, but I was doing, you know, I was just digging into to our, our statistics a little bit. And, and still it blows me away. And it probably, probably blows you away to see you hit 612 homers. Too. You know how many people can say that? In this world, I mean, it's it's such an awesome number. You hear guys hitting three, four hundred homers. You know, five hundred is just the the top of the mountain. And then you got into that six hundred club. Were you always a home run hitter in the minor leagues, or is that something that came as you became a big leaguer? No, I was not. I was not a home run hitter. I was I was brought up that you hit the ball gap to gap. Okay. And, and I go back to Charlie Manuel on this because Charlie was our hitting instructor in Cleveland. And one of the things Charlie taught a lot of us, myself, Manny Ramirez, guys that came up through the system is okay. First of all, we're going to be a hitter first. And then as we progress, you know, and, and the thing for me is, is I feel fortunate that I had Charlie because he kept me to left center field as a young hitter. And then when he knew the level of play, so what happened, Booney, is we got to triple A and I was getting beat up inside. You know, the inside fastball was just crushing me. And I was, I was fighting balls off, couldn't get the, you know, the barrel out. We call it the head of the bat out. And so, so Charlie made a bold move and put me on the plate and put my back foot close to home plate, opened me up, opened my hips up. And I'll never forget the day he did this. We were in Scranton and we came out and hit early. And I'll never forget the feeling I had when I started to pull the ball. It was like no other. And, and one of the things that Charlie always talked about was a little means a lot, whether it's for the positive or it's for the negative. And a little bit, that little tweak, you know, in AAA tweaked me and it got me, it got my hips. And, you know, and Ted Williams talks about this, by the way, his hips and hands. And it freed me up and like, like I had never, you know, it was almost something. I, I felt like I was a good hitter. But what he did with that, it, it just felt so good. And, and that was kind of the beginning of – and also, also it was the beginning of me learning how to hit the ball out front of the plate comfortable and not letting balls beat me, not letting the ball get so deep on the plate that I had to fight it off. He taught – we would go out and we would hit 3-0 – you know, he, he would say, okay, guys, we're going to hit 3-0 today. And how are we going to do this? We're going to do it by hitting the ball up front comfortably without rushing to the fastball. And I just, I feel so blessed and lucky that I had a guy like that that truly cared. And then, you know, and then I had to go do it. You know, I had to go out and do the work and get it done, but it was nice to have a have a coach and a hitting guy that really, really pulled for you. And, and you mentioned Charlie Manuel and he's kind of an iconic figure in the game. I, I never had the, the pleasure of playing for him, but, but it seems like guys like yourself and, and other people that have been in Charlie's world, they, they speak of him like you speak of him. Like he was just a guru on so many different levels. Not only was, was he a great baseball man, but he was, you know, at the same time was a friend, was a father figure. And I think that's cool without really knowing Charlie other than playing against him and, you know, pleasantries before the game or, or you know, how we interact. I, I really don't know him deeper than that, but, 
but from the guys that, you know, it seems like he's one of the guys in this game that have really touched a lot of people's lives. He, he has. And I think, you know, the unique thing is Charlie, when he left, you know, when he left Cleveland, he went to Philadelphia and really, you know, you, you watched what he did with Ryan Howard. You watched what he did with Utley, Jimmy Rollins, Jimmy Rollins won an MVP over there. I think what it is, is he has a great knack of, you know, of just making you feel good about yourself. Now you've got to have the talent. You've got to go out and produce, but when you got a guy like this, that, you know, at the end of the day is there for you, but it's also going to be very honest and, you know, and lay it on the line when it needs to be, you know, when, when hard things need to be said, Charlie was that guy. And, uh, you know, he's a special man. He's a special baseball man. You know, you look at that era. I mean, your dad was in, you know, with Bo and, you know, that era of baseball, you know, it was, it was as true. They were honest. They were true. And if you played the game right and you played it hard, you know, I think ultimately that's what the, that, that era of players really wanted out of our generation was just go play it the right way. And you know what? Let everything else take care of itself. And that's what I think. You know, today it's a different game. And, and I look at the players today. Uh, they're, they're obviously getting – a lot more physical on, on a statistically across the board. Uh, they do things a little yeah. bit different. And I've, and I've always said, and, and I remember, you know, when my grandfather was alive and man, you talk about protecting your generation. And he was from that era where nobody's better than Ted Williams and Bob Feller threw harder than anybody. And, you know, during our generation, I, you know, I remember, and these are real fond memories that I had of, of coming out of the clubhouse, you know, in, in a visiting stadium when, when Gramps was there. And he would just, you know, he would always talk about, oh, you guys today, you know, we did it back in the day the right way. And I used to laugh at him and I'd say, Gramps, yep. you've got kind of appreciate the guys of today because we definitely appreciate the guys before us. And I told him, I said, Gramps, I'm never going to be that guy. So now I'm 50 years old you know, loved our time coming up playing, uh, but certainly grew up in an era generation of my father, you know, in the seventies and the eighties. And, and also, you know, I see the current day. I, I like to take the good from the bat, from the, from the past. And you talk about Charlie Manuel and, and that type of mindset. I think it's a great thing for players to be able to look at, at past generations and take the good from those generations, take the current generation it, with the analytics and the data that these guys have available to yeah. them. And, you know, sometimes I'm really uh, envious of these guys. Man, if I could have uh, an iPad with all the data on it, man, I can sit there the night before we go into Cleveland, let's say, and in a couple hours, I'm going to be able to go through every reliever you got, every starter you got, what they've done for the last two months. So in a way, I'm envious, but I'm also, it's almost like there might be a little too much intel these days because, you know, yeah. as a hitter and a great hitter, the best, the, the, when, when you're at your best, you leave that on deck circle and, and between those ears, there's nothing going on. You're locked in, you got your plan, and you go hit. And, and if there's too much, that can be a detriment. Talk to that a little bit. Well, it can be. You know, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate and lucky. I work, you know, the, the White Sox hired me when I retired. So I, I get to be around, you know, our club. I live here in Chicago and you know, and going to spring training. And we, by the way, we have an outstanding fun group of players right now that are really, really talented. And you're right, uh, Brett, there's a mixture of information. And I think what we've done well for the White Sox is we've kept, we've got new information, the new analytics to the, we've kept the old school really good baseball men. So I think there's a mixture of both. And I think that's where you're going to see the game go is I think organizations, you know, hopefully will still keep those really good old school baseball men around 
that have so much to offer and so much to give. And on the, on the other end, the information that we're getting from our analytic team is outstanding as well. I just, I think there's got to be a balance to both. And then at the end of the day, you know, you, you, you still have to also play the game on a field. So, so you touched on it. That feel was, you know, when you as the Mariners would come in to Chicago, you might get to the ballpark early at one o'clock. You'd hit early and then you'd have a little break and then you'd come out and take BP. Well, that feel of Brett Boone finding his swing early that day translated at seven o'clock at night. If, if you come to the ballpark and you're, you have all this information sitting on your seat and I look at it from a piece of paper, it's not giving me the feel of what I need when I step in the box. And that's the feel of my swing. Now, I think the, 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 the good organizations do it and they balance it very well. And I think that's the, that's the, the point of the game that I think we're headed to is there's got to be a really nice mixture of both. No, I agree with that. I, I think it's the best of both worlds. I think for the naysayers out there that, that look at the modern game and, and are purists of the game and they say, oh, this analytical stuff, it's a bunch of, bunch of crap. I, I think that's a real naive approach. I think you need to embrace technology. But like you said, it's almost a marrying of the two. You you give me a good baseball man with a great gut. And I, and I say this, you know, I was fortunate enough to play for several really, really great managers. And the best ones yep. were the one with that gut that that when it came to crunch time and making that huge decision, you could throw that computer out the window and go with what that means. Yeah. And more t- more times than more times than not, that guy with a great baseball gut comes out on top and and i think i don't want to see that you know go by the wayside i think that's an important fabric of what makes this game so great and and we can move on with technology move on uh going forward but let's never forget you know that once you put it in terms of that feeling when you get you can have all the data you want (laughs) if you step into that cage and you're giving me that look you know that we've all had as Booty, I ain't got a clue what where my hands are right now. I'm I'm not getting my yeah. foot down. I'm, uh, it doesn't matter the data I have. I've got no chance. And, and vice versa, when I've got that feeling as a hitter, now I've got data on top of it. It's almost like now I'm cocked double barrel, and and that's a pretty awesome yep. feeling. A feeling that that we search for as hitters <laughs> forever. Because when we get there, we know it's it's not going to be there that long. You know. The greatest of the great yep. hit 300. So, so we're going to fail a lot. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just that, that thing that we're all searching for as players. And, and those trips to the cage and early work and those conversations with so many different people through the years. Man, that's what I miss most. You know, I don't miss chasing that slider off the dish anymore. I don't miss, I don't miss facing <laughs> Smoltzy and not being able to re- read his slider. It looks like a fastball. Yeah. I don't miss that, but I miss that grind and, and that work that, that we do going to the cage early and figuring it out. Because when you figure it out, the reward is so huge. Uh, what do you think about that? There is, there, there is nothing like leaving the cage and knowing and believing something special is going to happen. It's, it's one of the best feelings ever to know that you've put the work in. And when you leave, doesn't guarantee success, but you know, eventually really, really soon something special is going to happen. You know, earlier today, Brett, you talked about the leg kick and hitters that have a leg kick. And when you have a leg kick, how do you, how do you, you know, eliminate, you know, going 12 to 15 at bats without a hit and figuring out within, you know, the six to eight at bats, how do I make those quick adjustments and, and, and do that quicker? Now, I believe the analytics does 
have a good factor in this, meaning that some of the information that's being set down from pitchers, relief pitchers, you can use it to your advantage, but there's nothing that replaces when you go hit early and you find that feel of the leg kick and how to, you know, and, and, and I'm jumping to the leg kick. I was never a leg kick guy, but making those quick adjustments where you're not extending long periods of not getting base hits and not feeling well, you know, touch on that a little bit, what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, I th- you know, and, and my my thing is this, and I've and I've worked with you know when I was with the Oakland A's, and I work with the minor league side. <clears throat> my big thing was we've got to have something in our repertoire as hitters because this game is so hard and hitting so hard that we're not going to be in that zone for 162 games. Matter of fact, we're not going to be there even anywhere close. So my th- my thought was always have a backup plan. It's there. There are very few times where I walk to the ballpark. You did more than I did where I knew I'm going deep today or there's a chance because I'm in that zone. Everything's meshing. My foot's down. I'm just on time. So if I get the pitch I need, I know I'm going to do some damage today. That wasn't every day when I went to the ballpark. A lot of time is we got Pedro Martinez tonight and I got to find a way to get a uh, to to draw a walk and a knock. And I had a good day because yeah. I'm not in that mode. And I would talk to these kids about it, these young players of today and said, you know, that leg kick is great. You know, Josh Donaldson, we, I mentioned to you earlier, loved him when I met him. And I said, Josh, you got that leg kick and that leg kick makes you powerful. But that leg kick, because it's such an extravagant weapon you have, is statistically over 162 games not going to be a consistent go-to. So you got to find out when that's not working. And I don't mean find out five, six games into it. It's got to be that second game where my timing's off. Where do I go? Because I got I to survive and I got to compete tonight. And I, I'm not going to take an over. I need to be able to get a base hit when it's not working. Have that go-to, that emergency swing that you can go to that only you probably know about. But it's a it's yeah. a very powerful weapon. I try to I try to make the analogy to to a professional golfer when he's on the course and he ain't got it, or or he just shanked a ball. The rest of us amateurs, when we shank a ball, we look around and go, "Hope nobody saw that." I couldn't imagine being on TV on the weekend in a tour event and shanked a ball. Now I would assume that professional golfer has that. That backup swing where, you know what, I've got my B emergency swing where I can just bounce. I can just get this thing going forward and, and shoot par today. I'm not going to shoot five under, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not going to eliminate myself from this tournament. I think it's the same thing with baseball. I'm not going to go three for four tonight with two bombs, but I might be able to sneak a walk and a knockout and survive to play another day. In two or three days from now, I keep working early. Now I'm back in the mode, but you got to have that go-to. And before it gets to be an 0 for 16, 0 for 18, we've got to make a decision. Let's make a decision when we're 0 for 6 yeah. and not feeling good. And that, and that was my point. I, and, you know, that, I, think it's, I think it's good advice, even though I gave the advice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, tell me, when you, when you were not feeling good, uh, what, do, what was something little that you knew – when you were not feeling well and you were going to the cage, maybe that day, what would you work on? I think that's, you know, kids especially, you know, having a good routine is number one, but also knowing when I don't feel good, what was it for you that the main thing you focused on when you were not getting hits and just didn't feel good? My thing, my thing was I would simplify as much as I could when things weren't going. You know, when we're going good, it seems like we can do anything and our body just knows to get into that right position. We all do it in a different way, but it all it, it's the same result. When that ball's in the hitting zone, all hitters, all big league hitters, all successful big league hitters are in a very similar position when the ball's in the hitting zone. How we get there, that's 
that's unique to each individual. What I would do when things weren't going good, I wasn't seeing the ball well. I'd always have drills to concentrate on keeping my head still. Because I found that when my head bobbed up and down, I didn't know it, but my eyes were seeing a ball going up and down. That's a foul ball instead of a ball that should be driven. That was the first thing I did. I did a lot of flip. And I, I, I used a very narrow stance, especially the second half of my career where I figured it out a little bit. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite short in stature. <laughs> you know, I was 5'10", so I, I was trying to find a way to be as big as I could to make up for yeah. my lack of height, to gain some leverage. So my feet were very close together to, to stand as tall as I could. When things weren't going good, I wasn't seeing the ball. It seemed like if I got down and really eliminated try to keep my foot on the, my front foot to only lift it and put it down almost like a two strike stance. It allowed me, I didn't have the power that I had standing up, but I could survive. And now I'd go back yeah. once, once I was surviving, I'd go back to that cage with my normal stance. And, and it was almost like a moment where I'd feel it. That's it. That timing's back. Now I can go back to my regular stance, but as I got older and as I learned, through this game, because I had an awful lot of humble pie, uh, I learned little tricks like this to know, don't, don't let it extend and just look at the ceiling at night, what's going on. You know what to do when that timing isn't there. You have a go-to. And, and like I said, it might not be as powerful of a go-to, but it's going to be an efficient go-to where I can survive to play another day till I get back to feeling good again. And it's just repetition, repetition, repetition. I can't say that enough to young players out there. That's how we figure these things out. We all have, yourself and myself, we had, we had the luxury of playing in the big leagues a long time. We had access to some of the greatest minds in the game. But the bottom line is, <laughs> they're not going to help you get a hit when things aren't going good. So you need to know yourself, That's the right. way you learn yourself, the way you learn yourself, is repetition, trial and error. And the more, the more uh, experience you get with yourself, with your body, with your swing, uh, the easier it is to be able to fix. That was mine. Yeah, that I was mean, my way. I mean, I mean, great points. For, for me, and it was interesting because, you know, I held the bat out. But what happened is when I pointed the bat, what happened is I – as I would come back, Booney, I would get narrow and narrow. When and then if I got too narrow, then my my gaining ground going forward would get too long. So therefore, my front foot really never got down. And then I thought, you know, if a guy's throwing really hard, you know, then my mind and my brain was saying, "Be quicker, be quicker." But when I noticed. As I held the bat out as my pre-setup, if I kept my feet parallel to my shoulder and didn't creep back, my therefore my stride would get shorter. I would then, as the front foot hit, I would get separation on the back end. So as I got going and, and you know, the older I got, I would do a drill called, you know, the stride pause. I do it with my son right now that's going to be 13 in a week. Uh, and we do a stride and pause drill where you stride, you hold, and then the front foot's on the ground. Your bat is in position. That knob of the bat in the strongest position should point to the catcher. And when that does, you know, I can hold the ball for two seconds I could hold it for five and you're ready to hit. And I think what that did for me later on in my career, it proved to me that you don't, you know, you once the front foot hits down, you know, at that point, it's a quick kind of like, if I'm going to punch a, uh, if I'm going to hit a boxing bag, you know, with boxing gloves, I'm going to hit it quick. That's, that's kind of the feeling you want when you're attacking the baseball, not, not long and, you know, and, and body. Now I got there. I definitely would get, I think we all would, but striking out as much as I did taught me how to go back to kind of being simple. And how do I get back on that right path? 
Right. Yeah. That's great points. All right. So, so you come up as a third baseman in Cleveland. Yep. Then you eventually go to first base. And this is what I'm most interested in because uh, one of my, one of my best friends in the game, teammate of mine for years, one of the, one of the best, I, I know one of the best right-handed hitters of our time, he just went into the Hall of Fame, uh, I think one year after you, was Edgar Martinez. Yeah. And he spent most of his career as a DH. I played with Edgar as a rookie. He was a third baseman. But shortly thereafter, he went into that DH role. And, man, it's, you know, it, for us position players, it's, it's lucky. You know, I, it saved my career many times where I had somewhere to go when I couldn't get a hit. It's like, you know what? I, I can't get a hit. I'm going to go play second. I'm going to, I'm going to take a hit away from you. Yeah, Tell me how yeah. that, that transition from being a position player to now when you're strictly in a DH role, because that's a different animal all in itself. You guys, it, it's almost like a punter on a football team. You're different. We're all going to play defense, but you got to find a way to keep your mind in the game. I, I don't think it's an easy skill. I don't think any everybody's cut out for it. I certainly don't think I was cut out for it. I needed something to keep my mind off my hitting, and defense was that. How did you do that and, and still play at that high of a level? I'm fascinated by the DHs that, that hit as much yeah. as they do because it's, it's, it's an art. It's, it's a skill. It's something, you, and I think you could probably learn it, but it's not an easy thing. Speak to that a little bit. It, it, it's, it's not. And I had to learn it. So I came from Philadelphia to the White Sox. And Ozzy, I give, I give Ozzy Guillen a lot of credit. He was very honest with me and said, look, Jim, we brought you over here to DH and to hit in the middle of our lineup and drive in runs and help us win games. So the year I went to spring training in Tucson, uh, we – you know, it was it was all new. It was it was great for my body because playing third base and first, you know, uh, and the and the the grind of those long years. As I was getting older, you know, it was a great move for me. But but I needed to find out what the routine was and get a routine. So first of all. It's like anything. You got to become a good teammate and stay a good teammate. So, you know, as a DH, you don't want to sit on the bench and just, you know, attack it like, oh, I'm just pinch hitting four times a night. You have to stay loose. You have to go to the cage. Whether your routine is hitting on the tee, is it flips, whatever it is. And then there's the challenge also of not hitting too much. You don't want to wear yourself out so much that you're not ready during the game and, and fatiguing yourself, you know, in the cage. So I, I felt like I had a really, really nice routine. My, you know, if I had an at-bat, I was on the bench. I wanted to be a good teammate. I wanted to interact with the starting pitchers that weren't pitching that day. I wanted to uh, – I, I always talked to the pitching coach because – you can learn a lot from pitching coaches by just letting them speak and listening to philosophies. And, you know, if, if Booney, if I came in and a guy threw me a change up and I felt like I could hit that change up, I might joke with Coop and say, I'm going to sit on that change up the next two at bat. But I had to be willing to, you know, to buy in and to sit on a pitch, I wasn't a guest hitter, but I was a, I was a, 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 I looked at pitches that if a guy threw me and I knew I could do damage on that pitch, I was going to hunt it and I was going to stay on it until I got it. Uh, doesn't, doesn't mean I'd get off of the fastball. It just meant that I was very aware and what I needed to do if the guy was throwing a change up or a get me over breaking ball that I could attack and do well. But going back to the DH, the one thing that year I did was in spring training, I would go down to the minor leagues and I would bounce around on the triple A, double A, single A field. I might get 12 to legitimately 15 
to 16 at-bats in a day and just bounce and hit third every inning. So if our if our AAA was playing, I'd hit third for them. I'd bounce, then go over to the AA game and then hit third for them. And it really helped me, prepare me for that year, which was, oh, yeah, it was 06. And I had one of the better starts to my year that I ever had. Yeah, and, and you know, you, you touched on it's not guess hitting. You know, people always say he's a guess hitter. No, most of those hitters that are hunting, and you use the word hunting pitches, it's not a guess, it's an educated approach. And so I yeah. laugh, especially when a, when a great hitter uh, and, and somebody says, well, he's a guess hitter. No, he's not a guess hitter. Guess hitters go pitch to pitch <laughs> and usually aren't right. successful. The people that have the, the ability to, to be looking for a pitch and the discipline to stay with it and, and don't waver from your approach, eventually you're going to get that pitch. Now the, t- the thing is, don't miss it when you get it. <laughs> it might take you four yeah. or five pitches, but don't miss it when you get that baby. Let's talk yeah. about uh, the 90s. And I remember that we were both young players then. We were both coming up. You with uh, Cleveland. I was with the Reds. Uh, those Indians teams. I mean, how stacked were you? I mean, you have some uh, some great players that went on to have great careers. Even Sexton. We got Sexy was in Cleveland. Yeah. Manny. Uh, Burnett's Juan Gonzalez, Albert Bell. One of the greatest, one of the best hitters as a young kid when I was coming up. I used to just look at Albert Bell and go, wow. But talk a little bit about those Cleveland, that Cleveland lineup in the 90s, which maybe to this day is one of the greatest lineups ever. I, I believe so. I mean, there's, there's obviously been the 75 Reds were amazing. Uh, the, the John Hart, what he did and how he constructed our club from speed to power to homegrown kids that had come up from the minor leagues. Speaking of Richie Sexton, I'll never forget, there was a day in spring training, we would go out early and it was me, Richie, Sean Casey, and there was one more. There was one more first baseman, and I thought, gosh, all these guys could be an all-star, like legitimately, and they all, they all were later in their career. So that alone, you know, wh- how we built our minor leagues in the 90s pushed us, you know, big leaguers to, you know, to make sure that we worked our butts off to maintain, you know, the level of consistency that we wanted to that we wanted to get to and maintain. And, you know, watching guys like Albert and Bayerga and, and Kenny Lofton, how he set the tone of the game and, and the, just his, his energy and what he brought. And then, then you had Omar. And then when we brought Robbie Alomar over, I mean, I, Booney, I remember a game that it was Kenny, Omar, and Robbie led off the game with three bunt hits, three bunt hits. And Manny, I think as he did that year, because I think he drove in 165 runs. And <laughs> yeah, every, opportunity, right. e- every opportunity I had behind Manny, you better capitalize because you didn't get many opportunities because he had already taken them. Uh and in a good way, that's, that's the motivating team we had is, and in my opinion, it was all set by Albert Bell. Albert Bell was one of the most clutch, organized, prepared, you know, clutch hitter I ever seen from the sixth inning on and how he worked, how he had such a great routine I think really, really taught a lot of all of us, you know, if you wanted to be great, well, watch that guy because he's really good and this is how you should do it. 
Yeah, it, it's. I, I remember Albert, and when I played for the Reds, we'd have that Ohio Cup between the Reds and and Cleveland. And I remember like logging games and going, "I've never played in a game against Albert Bell where he didn't at least square up one ball." I've never seen him have yeah. a bad game. I, I never did, and and to this day, every game I played against Albert Bell, I never saw him have a bad game. And, uh, you know, his, his career, he, was, he was, was he short. was amazing. He truly was. And then, you know, and then we brought, we brought Eddie Murray over, you know, Eddie Murray was obviously it had a hall of fame career. We had Winfield, we had Sandy Alomar who, you know, who hit at the lower part of our lineup. And Oh, by the way, let's not forget me and Manny at one time, Manny and I hit seventh and eighth. On that I remember. Club. So, <laughs> excuse me. No, I remember that. I, I mean, that's that. Yes. That's why I say when, when I talk about that lineup, you got Tommy and Manny hitting seven, eight. That spoke to why I think it's one of the greatest lineups ever, ever, ever in the history of this game. Yeah, yeah. It was it was fun, and I credit our front office. You know. John Hart, Daniel Dowd, you know, then Mark Shapiro was along in that group. He was a young uh, front office executive. And then Mark has obviously went on and had a great career in the front office part of baseball. But all those guys, all those guys did an amazing job and, uh, you know, and really set the bar high for our team to be consistent. And the guys they brought in, pushed us and made us pay like you better be ready to go because there's guys pushing you down in the minor leagues. Yep. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go to here. This is something I haven't done before. I'm going to just, I'm going to name some pitchers of our generation. I want you to give me a one word answer. Give me a sentence, just something short. All right. We're going to do it real quick. Maddox. Crafty. Smolty. Crafty, one of the best, one of the best change-ups ever. Agreed. Smoltz. Huge competitor, big presence on the mound, wanted the ball in big games. Glavin. Crafty, pinpoint control, knew where he was going to throw pitches. Even if it was off the plate, he knew how to stay right in that area and would never get beat in the middle of the plate when he was on. He would never, you know, he was right pinpoint on the black to two to three inches away, and he lived right there. Pedro. Huge competitor. Maybe, I mean... When you faced him, you knew you better bring your A game because he had he had a presence like no other when he was on the mound, and you knew he cared and he was going to do anything on the mound to help their club win. Clemens, horse, power arm. You know when you faced him you knew you were facing one of the best. And okay, this, this guy was coming at you, and he was going to give you a fastball to hit. Don't miss it. This would be – this is – I'm interested in this one. Jim Tomey versus Randy Johnson. <laughs> very uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, I could have – it was uncomfortable enough for my side. Very uncomfortable. I – I, you know, I mean, and, and to be, and to lay it on the line, to be quite honest, I mean, most lefties did not feel good facing Randy. Now, I will tell you this. So Kenny Lofton, believe it or not, because Kenny made contact and Kenny could run, and Kenny used to kind of mess with Randy a little bit where he'd try to bunt, he'd slap balls to shortstop and get, get hits. Like, he could pull that off. I couldn't pull that off because I was, you know, I was a guy on the plate. My front side kind of leaked a little bit. You know, I was looking to hit a ball in the gap, 
and Randy, in my early days, Randy was just, he was hard for me to handle. I'll be honest. All right. Now I'm going to, I'm going to finish with the two probably dominant closers of our time. Hoffy, Trevor Hoffman. I mean, just, just knew when he came in the game from the music they played, you knew the game. I, I don't want to say it was over, but it was over. And because of, you know, how good he was, he just never made mistakes. And it wasn't that he was tremendously overpowering. He just, this was a guy that prepped that, you know, if you watched him work before the game and how he took care of himself physically, there's no wonder why he saved as many games as he did and had the career he had because of his preparation. And I just, guys like that that are prepared, they, you know, we call it the baseball gods. Those baseball gods reward you. They do. When you, when you, when you prepare and you're good and you have great work ethic, Hoppy had that. Last but not least, Mariano. Sandman. Never, never took a bat that I wanted to use and face him. <laughs> if I was getting hits, if I was getting hits and I felt really good with a, with a bat, I never used it against Mariano. That's how good his cutter was. I, I, you couldn't. He was, it was the single most devastating pitch I ever seen in the big leagues and what it did. It bit so late on your hands that you just, you'd go back and you'd go, okay, I'm going to back off. And then he and Posada would watch that. They'd watch where your feet was. And then and later on, later on, Mariano would throw backdoor cutters to me because he knew I backed off. And I had some walks on him. I actually hit a home run off Mariano when he started. And I don't remember the year. I'd have to look back. It was in the early, early to mid-90s. And he started like a game, and I, I hit a homer to right center in, in, uh, in Yankee Stadium. And then when he went into the closer role, you can throw that out the window because that was never going to happen again. He wouldn't let it. And, and the one thing I said about Mariano was it, it's not that I mean, he had pinpoint control with that cutter, but it was the heaviest cutter I've ever felt. It felt yeah. like a, mat, a matic sinker. It was just heavy, you know, like it is a bowling ball coming off your bat. And I, I never try to do too much with Mariano, but, but it was, uh, yeah. That, that, you know, b- believe it or not, Booney, our righties like Sandy Alomar did very well on Mariano. Our, our right-handers did better when he was a closer uh, than really our lefties, to be honest. I mean, our righties could actually get some hits on him to right field. Yeah. No, righties always had a better chance. Always. Uh, it, it's just when I approached Mariano, it was, you know, I, this is not a home run at bat. This isn't even a double at bat for me. This is take that cutter away. Take your base hit to right if you can. And, and I, I wouldn't get greedy with those heavy sinkers. I wouldn't get greedy with that heavy cutter. I wouldn't get greedy with all right, I want to go into, and this is this is a something a, a genuine thing for me, and, and we've talked about it before. But I got to I got to go. Uh, I went to see um, Trevor Hoffman get inducted in the Hall of Fame. That was your year, and yeah. it was the first time I went there, and and I was overwhelmed about you know we've only seen it on TV. The speeches I only had. And I thought it was just a, a, the Hall of Fame speech to, you know, family and friends and maybe a couple thousand people in the audience. And then to actually go there and to see that it, it's almost like Woodstock for people that have never been there. It's unbelievable. I got to see you inducted. It, it was a great group. And, and Trevor being a real close friend of mine, you know, for 20, yeah. 25 years, 
leading up to that, he really was grinding on that on that Hall of Fame speech. He really took it serious. And and I think you had said, you know, that's that's probably the most important speech you ever make in your life. And I really was impressed that year. It was it was being an ex player. And, you know, it's more about getting to see you guys and hang out with the, with your buddies and ex teammates and ex guys you competed against. But that was really cool for me watching you guys deliver your speech because I could tell it, it, it meant something to you. It was important yeah. to you that you delivered it in a way. And I had heard a story, and I want you to confirm it, that you'd flown in early to practice on that podium in front of that grassy yeah. knoll, we call it, that, that once you're going to give your speech on, on Hall of Fame Day, there's 50,000 people sitting there. But I heard you flew out and practiced your speech. So, so that is accurate. Yes, that is true. And so, so I'll go back. I'll, okay. I'll go back, you know, four months, five months. So, you know, you, you're, you know, one of the greatest gifts is when you do get that call from Cooperstown that you're elected and you get to join the greatest baseball men, the, one of the greatest fraternities ever uh, of men that played the game. And, you know, and then, so, you go through this week process of, you know, you fly to Cooperstown, you go to New York. And then when you leave, it's like, okay, where do I go from here? Like where, as far as my speech goes. So I, I'm lucky. I have a wife that's an author. So that helped. And then I had some resources in the game and you put all your notes together. So you you know, for about a month, month and a half, you're putting all this together and you want to make it good. Let's face it. It's, it's an important, one of the most important things, you know, that you'll probably ever do and being blessed to be granted that gift to give that speech. It's just, I agree with Hoffie. It was for me, I took a lot of pride. So I got the speech prepared got it all written out and about in the May, it was probably May starting in June, I started prepping outside. So I called Shesta, one of the guys at the Hall of Fame, and asked him, I said, Hey, you know, how do guys, you know, typically prepare? We talked about we'll do it outside because that's where you're gonna give your speech and be in that environment. So for about a month and a half I'm prepping in my backyard, putting my speech in hedge bushes, reading it, looking up, visualizing what you possibly, you know, like imaginary think what it's going to be, but you truly don't know. And I felt really good. I mean, I felt amazing that I'm like, okay, so we're about three weeks out and I called Jeff Idelson uh, the president of the Hall of Fame, and I said, Jeff, I, I, I got a, I got a request, and would you mind if I fly to Cooperstown and go to the grassy knoll and have a podium and and just read my speech and be in that environment? I'll fly in for a day. I'll fly right back out. So I jumped on a plane. I flew to Albany. Uh, took a car into Cooperstown. You know, they had everything set up as they do first class. Uh, I sat there. I gave my speech to four of the, of the head executives at the Hall of Fame, and they sat in lawn chairs out front. And by the way, that was more nerve-wracking than anything because, you know, this was the first time I had ever really read it in front of people and given my speech and I, I left there. They said, man, you did a great job. We had lunch at the Odasaga. I jumped on a plane. And so for two weeks, Booney, I felt like I was in the arena. I was in the arena that, that is, was going to take place in two weeks. Now, without the fifty to 70,000 people, which is, by the way, exactly 
the feeling of what you can imagine Woodstock being. It's just, it's one of the greatest feelings ever to be on that stage and to be blessed to be able to give a speech. And I just, to this day, I feel so grateful. I feel so humbled that I was able to do that and be a part of what is a, a tremendous fraternity. And I'll tell you to the, to the fans out there and, and listeners of the boom podcast, if, if you haven't seen Jim Tomey's hall of fame speech, Google it, it's worth it because there's not too many things, you know, I've been around this game a long time, you know, from a, a, a kid in the clubhouse to a, a player. So it, it's really tough for me to be, you know, for me to see something or, or be moved by something. But I'll tell you, going to Cooperstown, watching you guys up there, give your speech and, and just being in the crowd. It was truly it, it's a moment where I was touched and I'm going this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And, and it was really cool. And, and I could tell. And your, your speech, I think all the speeches were really good your year. But yours, yeah. yours stuck out to me because I could tell, man, this was important to you. And you were grinding on it. And it was so important to you to give that good speech. And you could tell. And then I, after the fact, I'd heard you'd gone out there and it made it even cooler for me. I'm like, that's awesome. He flies in to, to do it in front of that crowd. Uh, really, really cool story. Uh, it you're was, at the network. It was, it, was the really, network. it was. You're at the network. Are you still part time in the network? Full time? What are you doing at MLB? I am. I am since the pan, since COVID and the pandemic. I have not worked at the network since oh, since March, since February. So right before spring training, I was there. And then went to spring training with the White Sox. We left there, uh, and I have not been back. But I've got to tell you this, and I know, I know you were there and did some work a little bit as well. It is yep. one of the yep. best places ever. You talk about talk about a great fraternity. Talk about a great group of you know players that we played against, some with, you know, most against, and. You know, being retired and being able to be around those guys and talk baseball, one of the greatest gifts that I can say, and it was before COVID, I would fly in four days a month, you know, go through hitting demos, talk ball, you know, really try to use our platform to help young kids in, you know, in teaching their game and give them information that they can maybe take to their team, to their coach, to their dad, and go, you know what, I'm going to try that drill. And I've had countless number of kids that have come up to me that have said, you know, hey, Jim, I saw that demo. You know, I tried it, and I did great. I, I really feel good doing that. To me, that's the greatest part of that job is that you can touch – the, our young generation and hopefully send good messages out that we're trying to help them, you know, master what their game is and be good at it. Yeah, it, it is. It's, uh, it's at this stage of our lives. It is. It's very, it's gratifying. It's fulfilling when you could touch a young player, even if you just helped them a little bit, you know, and, and yeah. it's not that you even need the praise. It's just knowing, you know, that look in his eye when he looks at you, like you help me. You know, that, that's a cool feeling yep. and it, you don't need the fanfare and you don't need the, the headlines. It's just that, that one-on-one -on -one relationship that, that you helped or maybe helped a kid get to that next level or, or break through a, you know, a bear. Jimmy, this has been a pleasure. It's, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. What we do here on the Boone podcast when me and you are done is uh, the fans have a couple questions and uh, the, to, yeah. to deliver those questions, we're going to bring back Big Dan Levy. Dan, yes. What up? <laughs> what up, Jimmy? Oh, thanks for thanks again what for up, Dan. Thanks again for Dan, jumping the on the tornado, show. The tornado never hit you, did it? It never hit over by you. I never got the tornado, but the wind sounded like Dorothy was getting swept away right in my living room. So I don't know what that was, yeah. but it was loud. And I hope to see you in a Mariano's very soon. I will say that, but. I just wanted Sounds to give. Yes. I, I wanted to give you one thing because, again, I 
when we do this podcast, I bring up the White Sox a lot. The reason why I do it is, A, because I live out here in Chicago now. My wife, her dad was actually an umpire for the White Sox back during the uh, strike years. And my wife okay. is a giant, giant White Sox fan. Giant White Sox. I actually met her because she used to do traffic reports in the, uh, well, it used to be Comiskey Park. And she was on the U.S. Cellular yeah. Field. And I met her that way. And she became my wife. That was one of the ways I met her. But I, we, we are broadcasting people. But I remember when the White Sox got you. And she would go to all the, the home openers. Her and her friend, they had tickets for every home opener. And when they got you, I remember her saying to me, my dad has been telling me a lot about Jim Tomey. He's supposed to be pretty good. And your first game at the cell was like the home opener for every White Sox game. It had to been yeah. like the worst day in the world. It was nothing but rain and snow. And I, because I was part of the media and I was covering you and covering the game, I remember just texting her. I said, if you're still here, I think they're going to start the game and Tomey's going to get up. You have to see how hard this guy hits. And you got up and they, the game started like three hours later and you crushed this ball. And I remember her going like, who is this guy again? And I was like, he's like one of the greatest hitters of all time. I told you, he's amazing. And I remember telling her, every, yeah, even even when you hit that 500 home run, I was like, this guy is, you were something different because the White Sox, they've had Frank Thomas. They had Albert Bell. They had these guys. But during that time when you came in and people thought that World Series window was closing, they still had AJ and a bunch of other people on that roster. But I remember when you come in there and being like, no, no, they just added like an amazing guy. So from the bottom of my heart, you gave some memories to us that still stands to this day. So thank you for that. Thank you. Now, hey, I would, Dan, I'm still, I'm still, I, I got a question, Dan. Who ahead. is, who, who is the former umpire for the Chicago White Sox? His name That's was, what I'm interested his, in. You threw me off. His name was Woody Urchek. Yeah. His name was Woody Urchek. <laughs> I do have pictures of him as yeah, an umpire. You can't be an umpire for the White Sox. Well, he umpired only <laughs> local Chicago games. They want him, they, they did want him to go, <laughs> they did want him to go like national, but he only did like the games that were in town that he was able All to right. do. He was, I mean, you've met, the, if you would meet this guy, he was, Nobody was biased. That guy was on it. He is still on it. Um, the other question I will have for you, and I would be remiss if I did it, Tony LaRusso, I've asked this question before. When he when it was announced that he was going to be the manager for the White Sox, a lot of people were saying that he doesn't relate to players. I think the exact opposite way, and I kind of wanted to get your opinion of a guy of that elk, a guy of that upper echelon of coach. Tell me how much relatability he will have to this exciting White Sox club because a lot of people are saying, you know, this team's going to go far and could go all the way. What does Tony La Russa bring to this fun roster? Well, I think I think his resume speaks for itself. You know, he's a Hall of Fame manager. He's won, you know, I think three or four world championships. And, you know, what I, you know, so, so everyone talks about the analytics. Well, Tony, you know, back in the day was kind of ahead of, of his time, to be honest. Like he... You know, Tony's ultra prepared. He's he's a guy that's going to, at the end of the day, live baseball every day to the fullest. And he's going to give back to his players, you know, the knowledge that he's, you know, earned over the years. And hopefully, hopefully teach our young kids, you know, how to play the game. And that's that's. To me, that's the biggest thing because I think Tony is a wonderful baseball man. If you sit and talk to him, you know, you don't do much talking because you want to just listen. You want to listen to all the great things, all the strategies, all the things that these great baseball men think about on a daily basis. And I'm sure that played a big part into hiring him was – just the fact of how he can run a ball game and, you know, having that edge of being a Hall of Fame manager is uh, is something I feel, you know, was probably hard to pass up. Excellent. Excellent. Now, actually, a question is for both of you guys, because the question I have is that I have a six-year-old boy. His name is DJ, and he's starting to get into the sports one. I didn't want to push him. I watch a lot of sports, and I know that he's – He's a very creative kid. He likes, you know, dinosaurs in space. But I see him when I'm watching sports. He's asking me a lot of questions. And it is going towards baseball a lot. He's starting to have a lot of questions about baseball and things of that nature. If he does take to it, if he does say, Dad, I, I want to, you know, do the baseball thing. And I think I want to be a hitter. 
what's some early advice I can give a kid like that? I don't want to push too much on him, but is there some basic, basic things I can give a little kid in terms of advice on what to do and even technically things I should kind of work with him on if should he want to go that route? Well, Danny, I would say get out of his way. Yeah. Let a kid let let him be a kid. Grip it and rip it until you yep. get to a point where you where you know you're at. But the one thing I talk to young kids about, and, and it's more to the parents than the kids. It's you only get to be a kid once. Every kid's not going to be a superstar, and and you know I hate to tell tell parents this sometimes, but little Johnny's probably not going to be a big leaguer. So let him be a kid. <laughs> let him go out with his yeah. buddies, get three hits win a game and go have a soft pretzel because you only get that one time. It, this game gets serious soon enough. And it, and it really, uh, it, it, it gets to be a job soon enough. So let him be a kid, let him enjoy, support him in whatever he does and just yep. let him go till he doesn't want to do it anymore. That's my advice. Yeah. I mean, I'll, 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 I'll go off of that. I think, you know, this game, when you watch, an eight, nine, ten-year-old play the game. What is the one thing they're doing? They're smiling. They're having fun. And I think as parents, as coaches, you know, as ambassadors to our younger generation, we have to let them be themselves and just continue to have fun. And, you know, kids grow up very quick. In due time, it's going to get serious and – you know, but boy, when you can just embrace and have fun and, you know, go get a hot dog or go get, you know, go have, you know, a barbecue after the game, you know, and just just have fun. Enjoy the time. I know my son is going to turn 13, you know, and, you know, think about it. Youth baseball is going to end probably here in a couple years because he's going to go to high school. And I'm going to try to enjoy, you know, being around as much as I can and embrace it and try to have as much fun as he is. Well, I'll tell you guys this much. No matter what happens in his career, he'll always enjoy watching me eat his hot dog and soft pretzel. Because if he doesn't hit a home home run, he's not coming home. I'm just kidding. That that doesn't shock me. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. I'm on a steady diet of ice cream and and hot dogs. He's a that's my uh, quarantine diet. Well, Jim, we want to thank you so much for coming on. I've tried to do the research. Are you on any kind of social media? Is there anything you want to promote? Anything you want to get out there? No, no, I'm, I, you know, I, I was never on social media and I just, you know, for me, I feel lucky. I do work at the network. If I do want to get anything out there, you know, it's usually, you know, through that platform and, uh, my wife, you know, my wife, Andrea is an author, so she's on it Great. and, you know, but it's, you know, I, I, Booney, I don't know if you're on it and, you know, but it's, it's something our generation, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Instagram, but I, I do know there's some great things and great you can do with it now. So it's, you know, thank I, goodness I, they didn't have it when people. we were playing, Jimmy. I don't want What's people that? knowing too much. Uh, thank goodness they didn't have it when we were playing. I don't want people knowing my business. <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> all right well thank you jimmy so much for coming on and hanging out with us once again if you want to go ahead and follow brett boone you can find him on twitter it's at the boone 29 and you can find him on facebook and instagram too you just got to search out for him but you can find him there and remember please subscribe comment review the podcast let us let us know what you think don't feel scared. You can text and tweet us at all of us. And if you have any questions for Boone or anybody coming up, please feel free to uh, send us a tweet and we will uh, try to answer all your questions. Once again, for the former all-star, the former silver slugger and golden glover, Brett Boone. My name is Dan Levy. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you guys on the next one. Take care, everybody. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 